Episode 101 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Go Loud. It's me, COB. It's me, Terry Flower. And today we're joined by... Bill Foley. And... Frank Craney. How are you, lads? Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Yeah, all good. Good to be here. All right, so today's episode is going to be a bit more on the serious side of things. Uh, Frank and Bill have come in to talk about a story that uh, Frank has turned into a podcast series. And what's the podcast called, Frank? Inside the Crime, it's the second season of our true crime podcast, and this is the Charles Self murder. So it tells the story of Charles Self, who at the time was 32 years of age. Back in 1982, he was a set designer and a very talented set designer. He worked for RTE. And in the early hours of the 21st of January 1982, he was murdered in his home. He lived in a muse in Monkstown in South Dublin. It was a brutal murder, a very violent murder. He was stabbed 14 times. Um, Six of the stab wounds were so ferocious, they went straight through his body. He'd been strangled, his throat had been cut and he was left there to die. He was found at 8.45 um, that morning and to this day, 40 years on, we don't know who killed him. Right, so this is going to be a lot to kind of get into. Um, Before we get started, Frank, do you want to give us a bit of a background about who you are and what you do? I work for um, for Bauer Audio uh, Ireland. Um, I would probably be best known for my work with News Talk and Today FM as a courts correspondent. So my day to day is spent down in the courts, um, mostly in the Central Criminal Court. Lately, I've been spending a lot of time in the Special Criminal Court covering the ongoing Regency Hotel murder trial. Um, I started off as a freelance journalist. In fact, going way back, I studied law once upon a time. and quickly realized that that wasn't for me. I think I probably got into it for all of the wrong reasons. I had grown up watching court dramas and uh, soon realized that the reality was nothing like Matlock or Ali McBeal or or any of these shows that I used to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, very different. Um, Now I finished the course um, and I I did enjoy it, but I kind of felt half having finished it at 21 years of age that um, I wasn't 100% sure if it was a career path that I wanted to pursue. So long story short, I went traveling for about 18 months and while I was away I started writing and had this light bulb moment and when I came back to Ireland I'm from Galway when I came back to to Galway I set about studying journalism I did a master's in journalism always thought I would be a writer I loved writing and and have always loved writing but as soon as I stepped into um, a radio studio and we had one we were lucky enough to have one in the journalism course that I studied down in, in NUI Galway I just fell in love with that medium, love the intimacy of radio, love the immediacy of, of radio. There's nothing more thrilling than following um, a breaking news story. Um, I started working for a local radio station down in Galway around the same time as the height of the recession. There were no jobs. And, you know, after a couple of years there, unfortunately, there was no more work there for me. So I went out, spent my last couple of quid on a laptop and an old recorder. And I kind of figured I knew the law, or at least I knew the language. So I went down to the local courthouse in Galway and 
just started following stories, writing up stories, voicing up stories, selling them or sending them. I wasn't certainly wasn't selling them, but I was sending them to newsrooms around the country. And then slowly but surely, I started to get a bit of a reputation and then quickly realized that my hometown of Galway was um, a pretty safe town. And for a crime reporter, um, that isn't good for business. So I moved to Dublin maybe 10 years or so ago now I was working as a freelancer, went on to become a crime reporter with 98 FM. And um, and I'm currently working as a courts correspondent now with the group for the last seven years or so. And Bill, you're going on the opposite end of this. So Frank is writing the story or researching the story. You're probably involved in the story a lot more. You would have moved in the same kind of social circles as Charles back in the 80s, the early 80s. Yeah, I suppose it was a very, very different time then. I, I came out myself at the age of 17, so it was quite young back then. You know, things were very different in Ireland in, in relation to gay sexuality back then. So it was harder to come out. Generally, people came out a bit later in their 20s or 30s. Um, but there was a, a large group of us, uh, maybe about 10 or 15 people on the scene at the time who were around about 17, 18 kind of age group. I did become involved actively in the political movement actually quite soon after I came out within a couple of years, really. And I suppose the Charles Self murder was one of the first big kind of actions the, the group I was involved in. It was called the Dublin Lesbian and Gay Men's Collective. Um, they organised uh, a protest outside the Pier Street Garden Station when the investigation came into the gay community. They were doing a very extensive interviewing system. So there were something like 1500 people interviewed on suspicion in that case, even though they had a description of the person who maybe had committed the crime. People said that the guards came to their home or their place of work and um, said, you, we want to talk to you about a gay murder. And so it was quite intimidating at the time. Um, so I, I came at it from that point of view. And I suppose the social scene also in the gay movement was very different at the time. There were there were certainly a fair number of bars and clubs where people met and so on. But there was also a very active and thriving party scene. So back then, you know, the scene was kind of so small that if somebody was having a party, there would be an assumption that everybody could go, whether you were invited or not. And Charles Self was one of the guys who would have regular parties in his place. And you'd just turn up saying, you know, Joe sent me or whatever it is. Hmm. And that people would allow you in. It was a tradition to do that. So I knew Charles from that point of view. I didn't know him well. I was there kind of as a gatecrasher in a couple of his parties. But I knew him slightly socially at the time, yeah. Yeah, so this... I just want to put my hands up here early and say this is going to be a huge learning episode for me. I didn't know an awful lot about all of this. I only actually found out last week that it was illegal to be gay up until 1993. Look, I am shocked by that. Still, like Calvin said it to me last week and I was like, that can't be right. And then obviously our producer Alan was like, no, that's correct. And I was like, oh Jesus, this whole episode is just going to be a learning call for me. The And it was, I mean, working on this story and working on this series with our producer, Ashley Moore, was a real eye-opener for me too. Um, and the law that you're talking about was uh, was put in place back in the 1800s and was still in place at the time that Charles Self was murdered in 1982. Charles Self was an openly gay man. He was very, very proud of it. But this was at a time and a place where, you know, Ireland was, you know, there was an element, I'm sure you'd agree, Bill, of hostility, the wider society towards gay people because of, because of that legislation. The real cruel thing about it was that it's incorrect to say that being gay was illegal. 
it was the expression of your sexuality, homosexual acts. But that was the word that was in our law books at the time. It's derogatory. It's so clinical. It's so legalese. But that was the word that was in our legislation. So, you know, you could be put in prison for a number of years for expressing your love for another man. Women weren't treated in the same way. They were, it was almost worse for women because they weren't even considered in the law books, Bill. I yeah. think that's correct. That's right. I mean, the story is that um, the, the legislation was kind of, it was actually a reform legislation. So the previous legislation was worse, mm -hmm. where people could be sentenced to death for being gay. But the Victorians repealed the legislation so that you'd go to life imprisonment or a, a, a sentence of imprisonment. And when the legislation was being discussed with Queen Victoria, so so the story goes, when it was mentioned about same sex between women, she said that's not possible, it couldn't happen. So it, w it was just targeting men. And as you say, it was specific sexual activities between men that were, were criminalized. So, um, I mean, it, it meant that there was a social stigma around all gay people. It wasn't just gay men. So everybody was vilified by it. Any, any same sex kind of behavior was treated as sinful, as, you know, you were socially ostracized. There were a lot of women, you know, who came out late again, as I say, because you were, it was such a difficult process at the time to admit to yourself even that you were gay. A lot of women kind of took longer to do that. So a lot of them went into marriages, for instance, and had children. And then when they came out later, um, their children were potentially taken off them if they revealed their sexuality. So there's a huge kind of level of oppression, despite the fact there was no legal uh, prohibition against lesbians. Um, do you know of anybody or any like kind of high, highly known cases in Ireland of people being like imprisoned for sexual acts of like, I don't know, homosexual acts, as you were saying, as the legislation goes? Do you know of anybody who was being imprisoned over that or been... I don't, I don't know anybody personally. There's there's a process going on at the moment, actually, in the wake of the apology that the government made to the to the gay community about five years ago now, um, whereby they were kind of apologizing for the laws being on the statute books and particularly for them being on the statute books for so long. And as a follow on to that, they're looking at the numbers of people who are prosecuted under the old legislation. And what they're trying to do is to institute a process of disregard. So that means that somebody who had a criminal record because of gay sexual activity can have that kind of not not written off the statute books, but disregarded. So if somebody came along and asked, you know, say you, do you have a criminal record? And this had happened to you, they would disregard that. In other words, it wouldn't be revealed to the public. So for, for people going for jobs and stuff like that, it, it was a potential hazard that this record was there. A disregard system would mean that it wouldn't come up on a record anymore. So there had been a low number of prosecutions in the early 1900s about this. But actually, ironically, when Ireland achieved independence from Britain, and remember, these were British laws that were instituted under Queen Victoria, the incidence of prosecution increased. And that was a way of the probably the free state asserting its idea of independence and authority by saying, look, we can punish, you know, these yeah. people too. And so there were large numbers. There were several hundred a year, you know, up to the, about the 1960s uh, or 70s, I think, was the last kind of series of prosecutions that happened under that. Now, I didn't know anybody personally, but there were quite, you know, significant numbers of them. 
Um, and it echoed in a way what was happening in Britain. There was a whole series of prosecutions in Britain, much more so than in Ireland. Um, they had there what was called a system of pretty policemen where guys would go out to areas where gay men were meeting and pose as gay men and then entrap somebody into it. Now that partly had been used in Ireland as well, but not to the same extent as, as in Britain. Do you think the influence of the Catholic Church in Ireland would have had a big uh, effect on Im yeah, imposing this? Absolutely. I mean, I think for most people now, it's hard to realise what life was like. I mean, we we sometimes look at kind of Islamic regimes, for instance, and think, oh God, that's so religiously oppressive. But it's not really a joke to say that actually Ireland under kind of the Catholic uh, Church back then was felt similar. You know, you were kind of um, wary of what you were thinking, how you were expressing yourself, the way you could have public conversations about sexuality and so on was very highly controlled. And, and what could be written about it was censored, you know, so it was very difficult to gain information around what was happening at the time. And that was really to do with the church-state alliance, which I think we still have in Ireland. It's difficult to get that separation. Well, going. you had the, the priest a few weeks ago on a mad one in mass condemning gay people as well. And like that's in 2022. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so it, it, there is that still a need for the separation of church and state in Ireland. I think we're slowly but surely getting there. Like yeah. I think that us clinging on now, we're almost fully separated, but we will get there. Um, have you wanting? No. So are you happy to go on to the yeah. story now? Yeah. Uh, Frank, if you wouldn't mind, will you take us into maybe the events leading up to when did you say it was January 1982? Yeah, the 21st of January 1982. Um, Charles Self was murdered sometime between 12.40 a.m. and 8.45 a.m. And we go through this in great detail in the earlier episodes of the podcast where, you know, the Gardaí were able to track down his movements. And we spoke to a very good friend of his, Bill Maher, who was one of the last people to have seen Charles alive. Um, they went for a couple of cheeky drinks in the Bailey of an afternoon on the 20th of January. So this would have been the day before. It was the last time that Bill saw his friend alive, but he described Charles as being in great form. Charles was from England, but he grew up in Scotland. His mum passed away when he was a boy. Uh, his father was uh, a soldier in the British Army and his aunt took him in. He grew up in Glasgow. He identified as a Scotsman and a proud Scotsman at that. He worked for the BBC as a set designer and he was then headhunted to Ireland. Uh, Charles Self was very, very talented um, at what he did. And we've spoken to colleagues who worked with him and he was very, very good at what he did. And he was headhunted to Ireland. He was convinced to come to Ireland to work for RTE. He went on to become the main set designer of The Late Late Show. And around the time of his death, he had worked on a Christmas special. Um, Twink had presented a Christmas special. It was a huge success. Charles had designed the set. He was in line for a pay rise. He was in line for more work. And when he met Bill that day, he was very much in a celebratory mood. Blackbush was his tipple of choice. They had a few cheeky drinks down in the Bailey, which isn't, you know, it's a short walk from where we are today. And just throwing back to what Bill was saying earlier about what it was like in Ireland for gay men in the early 1980s, there were only a handful of bars, so-called gay friendly bars, where gay men like Charles and Bill Maher could go and enjoy a drink together in peace and be comfortable there with their sexuality. That was only one of a handful of bars. And it's so funny nowadays, like walking up a street like Georgia Street, and it's wonderful to see the rainbow flag fluttering in the breeze and, you know, the rainbow on, you know, crossing the street and, 
men um, holding hands with their boyfriends, girl doing this, girls doing the same with their girlfriends. It's amazing. That wasn't the case back in the 1980s. So the guys had a couple of drinks there. Charles then went back to work. He had a meeting with his boss. And the next thing Bill knows, he's getting a phone call from a friend of his saying that Charles had been murdered. He didn't believe him. He went out, he got a newspaper and it was splashed across the front pages. Now, we do know from our research for the podcast that after Charles went back to RTE that afternoon again to meet with his boss, he went home at about eight o'clock in the evening. He put down a fire. He then went back into town. Um, he was picked up. He was waiting for a bus and he got picked up at about half past eight. Stranger took pity on him. It was a very cold evening, dropped him off around O'Connell Street. He went back to the Bailey. He went for a few drinks later in Bartley Dunn's, um, which was another gay friendly bar. He spent some time going around the gay friendly bars in Dublin. And then he went up to Burkey and he went to a takeaway there called the Hot Pot. It no longer exists, but he was well known to the staff in there. So they were able to identify him in there. And then he was spotted around the public toilets at Burkey. The public toilets have since been demolished, but back in 1982, they were a well-known cruising area. So they were a place where gay men would go to meet other gay men. And they were also, and we've spoken to a retired detective who used to work in the Vice Squad in Dublin in the 1980s. They were also a popular place for rent boys or young male prostitutes to ply their trade. And the initial theory um, that the Gardaí had, the murder squad who invest this case, investigated this case was that Charles brought home a rent boy and that this rent boy murdered him in the early hours of that morning. The taxi driver who brought Charles home that night had a very good description of this mystery man in the taxi. He was about 25 years of age. He had fair hair down to his collar. He was wearing a neat two-piece suit. He was quite drunk in the back of the car. He estimated he was maybe 25 years of age. This person has never been identified. And the guards suspected that this was a rent boy that had brought, that Charles had brought home and that he had murdered him, that he had escaped through a kitchen window. I suppose what we do through the podcast series is that was almost a lazy theory. And there were so many leads left behind by whoever um, did this to Charles. And we kind of felt having spoken to various contributors and having looked forensically at the case, that there were some leads that maybe weren't followed up on in the same way that I think they would nowadays but also, I think the investigation team treated this case differently because Charles Self was a gay man. And we have contributors who would say that if this had been a straight man working for Orty who had been murdered in such a brutal way, that maybe the investigation would have taken a different route. Because as Bill alluded to earlier, 1,500 gay men were pulled in for questioning on the back of this. Many of them didn't know Charles. Many of them had no information that could um, progress the investigation one way or another. Their fingerprints were taken as they were given witness statements. Their photographs were taken. And as this went on, as the weeks and months went on, there was a suspicion that the guards were building up a gay dossier. And again, you have to look at this through the prism of the land that Charles have lived in and the land that this case was being investigated in, where homosexuality was illegal and there was a real fear in the gay community that there was an ulterior motive for dragging all of these gay men in to um, supposedly on the pretense of investigating Charles's case, but they felt they were building up a database of gay men and that maybe if they'd been a bit more focused on the actual crime that we wouldn't be sitting here 40 years later wondering what happened. So this was just like an allowance for a homophobic witch hunt for the Garda? 
it was described in exactly those words by a number of people that we spoke to. Now, in fairness to the guards, you know, there were like Pier Street Guard Station where this peaceful picket took place outside Pier Street Guard Station. There were guards working there who were very sympathetic to the gay community. They were servants of the state in the sense that they were policing the laws of the state. But it's doing their job, really. They were doing their job. But, you know, there's a way of doing your job and there were many who, who you know, there's allegations of abuses of power in the sense that people were harassed as they were being questioned. We've heard incidents of people who wanted to get up and leave an interview and were physically pushed back into their chairs. The whole thing, we're trying to get a bit of clarity as to whether or not people's fingerprints are still on file because... As far as I can tell, you know, the only time those kind of things will be taken will be if you're considered a suspect in a crime. Now, obviously, the reason that they people were told they were being asked for their fingerprints was to exclude them from inquiries. Fing, you know, the muse was being dusted for prints. The crime scene was being dusted for prints. But there was a suspicion and a feeling, um, particularly for people who had never been in the muse, who didn't know Charles, that there was something else at play. And that's when the gay community really came together and and, and galvanised and started a protest and started to raise awareness about what they felt was happening. So you said those 1,500 people took in and didn't really follow up the leads they should have. Surely they must have had like a, a few frontrunners as suspects. Who was, who were they? they? They were very focused on this mystery man in the taxi. Um, so again, this person came home with Charles that night and has never been identified. And there was also a second mystery man introduced into the story. Charles Self lived with a man called Vincent Hanley. Vincent Hanley at the time was the best known DJ in Ireland, um, very famous and very successful, uh, went on to work with Capital Radio in London. Indeed, I think he was over in London at the time and he went over to the United States and did some some work in the media there too. Um, they were very good friends. Um, they shared this muse in Monkstown. Vincent was away. So a colleague of Charles was actually staying in the muse that night, a man called Bertie Tyrer. Uh, he worked in RT as well. He was also a designer. Now, Bertie was the one who found his body the following morning. But Bertie introduced a second mystery man into the story because he said that uh, while he didn't hear anything happening that night, the night of the murder, he said that he did remember somebody mistakenly walking into his room and saying, sorry, wrong room. This person was silhouetted by a light in the hallway behind him. And Bertie had a pretty decent description of this person. It would have been at odds with the mystery man in the taxi or at least the taxi driver's description of the mystery man in the taxi because this person who walked into Bertie's room had dark curly hair, was well-spoken, spoke with a West British accent. Um, So they were two mystery men. Um, There were two suspects that have never been identified. Look, that is nuts. These two men were never identified um, of all the people that were pulled in. Was there any kind of follow-on murders or similar attacks after that. You know, usually like, especially in a murder to that that degree, it seems as, I don't want to say it's very targeted, but it seems very excessive. Yeah. So uh, it seems like there's a motive behind that. Someone that's like trying to send a message. Like, what did you say, 14 times he was stabbed? Yeah, like it's not an accidental. You know, like he it's... didn't just stab him a couple of times and leave and his throat was So it is very gruesome, very extensive. But any kind of similar attacks or like near misses you know you often hear that these people throughout history like I know it might be a crude example but like Jack the Ripper and all of his victims had similar kind of events was there anything 
in the months after this that could kind of line up to give the guard a, a more um, direct route? Well, I mean, there were, um, and, and sadly there still are to this day, a lot of homophobic attacks in Irish society. Um, back in 1982, you had so-called ro- rollers or queer bashers. Um, again, what an awful term to use, but that's how they were described back in the days. Back in the day, you had people who would target gay men for a v- variety of reasons. Um, for rollers who maybe pretended that they were gay, they would have seen gay men as easy prey. Um, they would have pretended that they were gay. You know, somebody then let their guard down and they would rob them. And and those robberies tended to go unreported for a lot of reasons. Um, firstly, the victim would often be too embarrassed to go to the guards. And and secondly, there was a real concern that even if they did, their complaints weren't wouldn't be taken seriously and they wouldn't be followed up. Um, so as the months rolled by, the feeling within the gay community at the time was that the guards were more concerned with building this gay dossier than they were investigating Charles Self's murder. And also the way serious crime was investigated back in the early 1980s was very different to the way we see it now. Whereas in most urban guard stations in this country nowadays, there's a, de- a dedicated detective unit. That wasn't the case back then. There was a murder squad, you know, a group of specialised detectives that would investigate serious crimes so they would have been based in Dublin Castle and they would have been sent out to investigate something like Charles Self's murder with the assistance of of local detective units too. And as the weeks and months rolled by and the Charles Self investigation started to wind down, what happened then? You had the infamous Gubu murders. So Malcolm MacArthur is a name who is um, probably very well known to most people as being um, a, a, a double killer. He killed two people in 1982. Uh, Bridie Gargan was a nurse, a young nurse who um, was murdered by in Malcolm MacArthur as she was sunbathing in the Phoenix Park, having <coughs> finished work on a sunny day in June of 1982. And uh, just a few days after that, then he shot a farmer in the face with his own shotgun down in County Offaly. He caused huge huge controversy and um, I mean his story is still a talking point to this day 40 years on because he was arrested in the home of the then Attorney General a man called Patrick Connolly now he went on to serve a very lengthy prison sentence and was only released in in recent years but Malcolm MacArthur was known to socialise in some of these gay friendly bars and he was interviewed um, uh, by by the team investigating Charles Self's murder And there was a suspicion at the time that he fitted that description of the man who walked into the room that Bertie was staying in. Now, Bertie, as I said, was a designer at RTE, just like Charles. He drew every day of his life and he drew a sketch of this mystery man who walked into his room. So the guards were able to rely on on that. And again, I suppose the West Brit accent, the curly hair, you know, Malcolm MacArthur was in many circles being maybe brought into the frame in that sense. But it's important to point out that he was never considered a suspect in the sense that he was never he was never arrested. He was never interviewed under caution. Um, he was asked if he knew anything, if he could advance the investigation in, in, in any way, but he was never considered a suspect. The resources of the detectives unit, the murder squad, were obviously reassigned then to these Gubu murders. And then what happened later in the year is you had two more gay men being murdered in horrific circumstances. Down in Cork on the 8th of September 1982, a hotel porter called John Roach um, was brutally murdered. The, um, The man who killed him was brought to justice. He stood trial for murder. 
But incredibly, and again, you're looking back on 40 years ago, but it might as well have been a million years ago because this person was able to successfully raise the defense of gay panic, where he was able to convince a jury that because of the advances of John Roach, he claimed in his own words that John Roach was trying to make him a gay and that he had a moment of temporary insanity that that forced him to lose control and to kill him. So he was acquitted of murder. He got five years for manslaughter. The very next day then in Dublin, in Fairview Park, near Clontarf from the north side of the city, a man called Declan Flynn was targeted by a group of these so-called queer bashers, whereby one sat on a bench, again, pretending to be gay, drawing Declan into a sense of false security. And once Declan let his guard down, he was set upon then by by the gang and and he was beaten to death the following year these five young men uh, one of them a, a teenager uh, walked free from court um they were handed fully suspended sentences and i think bill you're probably better placed than i am to talk about the chilling effect that that had on the gay community at the time to think that five people could take a life in such a way and walk free from prison for well, it. I can't actually understand, sorry, I can't understand this. So this term is queer bashing, yeah? And it's people who purposely went out looking for gay men and killed them and then got suspended sentences for that. What how, were they charged with? Yeah, how do you walk from that? Like, Well, I mean, the, they one of them was charged with murder and the rest were charged with manslaughter because they were they were beating up. Um, there's there's evidence to suggest that the, this activity was happening in Fairview Park over the summer, at least, if not over a couple of years. And one gay man who had been approached and, you know, escaped, if you like, from assault from them, reported it to the guards in Clontarf and Fairview, and there was no response to it. And the guy was so concerned that he actually did a leaflet in the gay community, say, trying to warn other guys away from the area, particularly late at night, because it was dangerous, because there was an active gang working in the area. And um, again, he was ignored. So there's lots of kind of feeling retrospectively that the Declan Flynn murder could have been prevented if the guards had responded differently. Um, But again, the judge in the Declan Flynn case kind of made some horrific statements, including the fact that this could never be regarded as murder. He actually said that in court. And again, this notion of something as vile as a gay sexual act being propagated as as he would have it on young men, because they're all in their teens, really, uh, was vile and so vile that it could excuse murder, basically. That was the kind of thinking at the time. Um, I mean, it it was it was particularly vile in the Declan Flynn case because Declan was a very, you know, quiet, very sensitive, very simple kind of guy, uh, not the type type of guy who would normally kind of you would think of as going in cruising areas. He he worked with me in one of the um, gay organizations back in the eighties, and he was very polite at all times and and very kind of uh, meek in his his demeanor. So it was really particularly horrific for the family to hear, you know, this description of Declan and how brutally he was beaten to death in the park uh, around the the sexual behavior, because I certainly don't believe that was what was going on. Uh, um, And so it's it's just a horrific kind of, uh, you know, picture of the time, the attitudes of the time were there that 
there was nothing worse than being gay, basically. And even if you were associated with them and killed a gay person because they approached you, that would be seen as a reasonable defence, you know, the gay panic defence, as Frank has said. Yeah, and that organisation you're talking about back in the 80s that you and Declan Flynn were a part of, obviously marching for gay rights and stuff like that. Like, how scary was that at the time? For, for for years to be doing that obviously at a time when sexual activity is illegal yeah. and years are going out and doing that was what was that kind of like yeah well i mean there were some bars around that were were gay friendly and and there was bartley duns which was the iconic uh gay bar at the time i think everybody in ireland knew of that but other than that i mean when i came out in 75 there was the irish gay rights movement when that had a a kind of big um, club in Parnell Square and everybody kind of went there at the weekend to meet and there was a disco club and uh, all of that. Um, and it also had uh, meeting rooms so that people could go in and talk about what it meant to be gay in Ireland at the time, what, what we could do about it, you know, people getting their heads around the fact that they were gay themselves. Um, so there's a lot of support around that kind of um, mm. kind of idea, you know, and they were... I suppose, safe havens for the community at the time. But because these murders had happened and there'd been a sequence of them, there was an increasing concern around your own personal safety. So coming and going from a club or coming and going from a pub, you're always on edge, yeah. you know, looking who's around, what's happening in the, in the environment and so on. And there was a nervousness, an increasing nervousness about it. You know, it was one of the reasons I became involved in activism was really to kind of give myself a sense of control over that, because otherwise you were kind of cowering away in the dark each time, you know. Um, and people talk sometimes about the idea of cruising areas being particularly dangerous places and why did people not stay away from them? But, you know, when I came out, I took months, you know, wandering up and down outside Bartley Dunn's to see what it was like you know you'd hear all these kind of horrible stories about what happened with gay men what they do and all the rest of it that you were terrified to go into a pub because of what you were going to see in there and it took me literally months to actually bring up the courage to go in and then you find of course that it's a pub where people go and drink and meet friends you know, yeah. so there's almost a disappointment that you know people don't have two heads or whatever <laughs> but but there was such fear about going into the pubs that people preferred for privacy reasons to go to kind of public toilets, for instance, where they could be seen to be using the facility legitimately without any question around their sexuality. So for a lot of men at the time, using public facilities like that or parks were safer because they didn't have the gay label attached to them, do you know? And I think that was why there was a kind of huge use of, for instance, Fairview Park, Phoenix Park, and some of the, the toilets in the in the city centre, because people could feel they could use them without kind of any labelling of themselves as gay. Yeah. And, sorry, just back to the Declan Flynn one, did you say one of them men got done for murder? They were they were charged with murder, but they were all uh, given suspended sentences. All of the them were? All of them, yeah. I think one of them was given a five-year sentence uh, and that was completely suspended. Now, there was lots of character witnesses done around the neighbourhood in the court at the time, but as it turned out, I think it was the guy who got the five-year suspended sentence a couple of years later was was uh, before the courts again for a rape offence and he was convicted of that. So if he had been in prison for that period of time, that wouldn't have happened, you know. I, I think, I don't know, Bill, would you agree, but there was this sense of 
it was almost like a watershed moment because you have to ask yourself the question, if a straight man had been killed in the same circumstances in Fairview Park, would the outcome have been the same? That's a very difficult question to answer. But there was a real sense that a gay life just simply wasn't equal to a straight man's life. Um, and, 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 and that's something that's really stuck with me. And I remember speaking to Tony Walsh, who was also a contributor on, on the podcast. And, you know, I, I, we were having this very same conversation and he cut me off at one point and he said, Frank, you have to remember that like a gay man being beaten up, being hospitalized, being killed. I mean, it wasn't that shocking back then because they were so used to it. And I thought that in itself was shocking. That is so shocking. And, like and this conversation to me is baffling, you know, that it's, way. it's incredible. And um, it's a really important conversation to have. And it's great to be on the podcast chatting to you guys about it as well, because it's certainly been an eye opener for me. I mean, 1982, I wouldn't be born until 1983. So, I mean, clearly I'm not familiar with the goings on at that time, but it does feel like I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed almost to like look back in our country in 1982. Yes, in 2022, it's still not perfect. And there are certain corners of the gay community that still feel marginalized and still feel excluded from society. And we still have a long way to go. But my God, we have come a very, very long way. Um, Bill spoke about a man who um, was very conscious of the so-called queer bashing, gay bashing that was going on in, in Fairview Park and felt like his complaints were falling on deaf ears whenever he would go to the local Garda station. It's a man called Eddie Cash. And Eddie Cash, as Bill said, used to stand outside handing out leaflets, warning people, be careful. We have eyes on that leaflet. You know, he said, you're going to be considered easy prey. You're going to be considered easy prey. But again, there were people out there that were not comfortable going into the bars. And for them, going to these places was the only way that they could express their sexuality in a real way. Eddie Cash himself was targeted. During the summer of 1981, he was set upon by a gang of gay bashers. He was beaten to a pulp with clubs and sticks. He needed 39 stitches to close all his wounds. He spent a week in hospital. On the day that he was discharged from hospital, he rang his local guard station and he asked them to call over so that they could make a statement, so that he could make a statement. And they never did. I think that that just kind of summed up the attitude towards those types of offences. Imagine reporting that kind of a crime nowadays. Mm. I, I, I do. I am very confident that it would have been treated very differently. But but that's what you were dealing with as a gay man back in 1982. That's what you were up against. Yeah, it's shocking. What was the inspiration for you starting this podcast? Where does the idea come from for, for you to do this? Well, it's it's the second season of Inside the Crime With Inside the Crime, we don't want to just focus on the dreadful murder. Of course, it's important to share, you know, the story about how Charles died. But it's 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 equally important to talk about, you know, what was going on around that for the gay community to like highlight um, what life was like for a gay man back in the 1980s, how the case was investigated, you know, shortcomings in the case. But the greater purpose in all of this is that 40 years on, we firmly believe that somebody out there knows something, saw something that could advance this case, that could hold the key to figuring out who killed Charles Self. Because given the climate back in 1982 for a gay man, I don't think it's that unreasonable to say that if somebody had information back then, they might have been too afraid to come forward for fear of being prosecuted, for fear of not being believed. Or being or a sympathizer, basically. Absolutely. This mystery man in the taxi 
was always treated as a suspect. And having a forensic look at the investigation and speaking to those closest to it, I think they would have been better served to treat this person as a witness. And I think an appeal should be made to this person who would have been in his early to mid 20s, according to the description given by the taxi driver. So, you know, would be at, you know, maybe early to mid 60s now. He would be in his 60s, certainly. So, I mean, you know, if that person is listening, if that person has heard the podcast, if that person has some information that could. The one thing I know from the work that I do um, is that it's never too late. And also what's really important to remember is that sometimes what you might consider to be the most insignificant detail could be the thing that unlocks an entire case. You see it all time and time again up in the Central Criminal Court. And what is the status on the case now? Is it, are the guards still actively pursuing the case or is it just a cold case? It's still considered a live investigation. Um, all of the files are being held in a secured facility out in Santry Garda Station. Um, back in 2008, Charles's case was actually one of the very first cold case reviews. And in the final episode um, of our podcast series, we pour over the findings of that cold case review because certainly before we even looked at that, looking at the original investigation files, there were a number of anomalies that just jumped out to me um, and to our producer, Ashling. Um, we felt there were some things that just could have been pursued with a little bit more vigor. You know, the best, the best tool an, an investigator can have in general terms is an open mind. And we felt with the Charles Self case back in 1982, with the attitudes um, of some Gardaí at the time, that maybe the focus was a little bit too narrow. And as an investigator, if your focus is too narrow, you don't open up your mind to what's potentially happening outside of that initial theory. So the findings of that cold case review back in 2008 um, were incredible. There was a public appeal made at the time. There was a public appeal made again on television uh, back in 2017. And here we are again, you know, it's the 40th anniversary of Charles Self's murder. And here we are again making that appeal and it really is never too late. And we really hope that something will come of it. And we've set up a dedicated email account inside the crime at newstalk.com. Obviously, the first port of call should be the Gardaí and there is a confidential line 1800 one You know, on Garda Shia Khanna in 2022 was a very different police force than it was back in 1982. But if people still are reluctant or feel uncomfortable going to the Gardaí, even in a confidential manner, they can reach out to us. We'll follow up leads. We'll pass them on to the Gardaí as, as required. I'm going to want to shift the focus a bit because I'm a football fan. No. <laughs> no, no, but you know, no, they currently the World Cup yeah, is going yeah. on in Qatar, yeah. and it's illegal there to be gay and yeah. punishment by imprisonment still to this day. Yeah. And you touched on the religious movement um, early on the podcast, and a lot of people are looking at Qatar saying it's a very backwards ideology of what you're saying, blah blah blah. But in the build up to this World Cup, we had a lot of people coming forward, like David Beckham, who done some big work this year only with the LGBT community and he was the face of campaigns and now he's over in Qatar and he's the face of the World Cup. So it's a bit like there's a bit of hypocrisy there and um, there's a lot, there is a whole lot wrong with this whole World Cup being in Qatar and I, I don't really want to get into the whole detail of it all but in the build up to it, a lot of players came forward and they're like, well, we're going to have our own protest and everyone's like, right, what are you going to do? Boycott it? And they were like, 
no, we'll wear a rainbow armband. And everyone's like, well, that that's a bit of a tootless protest, but fair play to you, it'll show some kind of sim- uh, symbol. But they were warned by FIFA then, anybody caught protesting by wearing these armbands was going to get a yellow card. And they all bottled it. They were like, I, I don't want to risk getting a yellow card. So to me, you can't protest or stand up if there's no risk or some kind of jeopardy involved. You know what I mean? Who are you taking a stand against? But for someone the likes of you who is going to be oppressed in these countries, how does that make you feel? You know, when you see like, it particularly annoys me around June when Pride comes around and you see all these corporations change their logo to a rainbow flag. But this now, I think, was a perfect example for an organisation to come forward and be like, look, we're going to cut ties with FIFA or cut ties with some sort of organisation that's involved there and be like, because this is hypocrisy, like Budweiser, like I guarantee in June, Budweiser will be all over this whole, or we're for Pride and this, that, and the other. The logo's all over the, the, the backdrops of these press conferences and they're not even allowed to serve alcohol in the country. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's huge concern about human rights abuses in Qatar beyond the LGBT movement, obviously, in terms of workers' rights and so on, and, and, and racism and migration. And so there is a concern about FIFA's decision about having located the World Cup there in the first place. And I think it does call to question the idea of placing, you know, a, a sport like this with international focus in a country that actively oppresses kind of ra- a, a large proportion of its population. Now, it was a decision that was made, so you, you kind of have to live with it. And if you're living with it, then surely the onus is on FIFA to negotiate with the Qatari authorities around how to manage this issue. And it seems, as you say, that they kind of bottled out of making it possible for any level of not protest even as such, but any gesture of support towards the local LGBT community has been stifled. And the potential for having such, you know, attention on Qatar at the moment is to highlight the the difficult situation that many people are in in that country, particularly LGBT people, women, you know, a whole range of rights are, are, are kind of neglected and abused. But if if you have all of that attention and you abuse that by not focusing on the issues involved, then you're, you're doing a further disservice on top of the selection of Qatar already as the focus for World Cup, you know. So I think I can understand why, you know, the sanctions that FIFA were issuing out to the players and the teams in terms of, you know, what would happen them if they uh, did the protest uh, would, mean, would mean that they weren't able to participate. And in a sense, that that makes a, a mockery of the whole process. So I can understand their idea behind not not doing it. But it's it's FIFA's responsibility for the two decisions it's made, really, firstly, in, in locating the World Cup there, and secondly, by not allowing any dialogue around it. And really, it's it should be more focused on the support as opposed to protest around the government, as far as I'm concerned, because that's what the local organizations are going to require, is support to continue the very difficult work that they're doing there to help support each other in living their lives. Yeah, I think in professional football, globally, there's one gay man, I think he plays in Australia. I think it's one of the most, like underrepresented in terms of uh, yeah. sexuality um, and that's why you have all these footballers coming forward and they're like oh I'd support anybody to come out and like 
how could you be more supportive than standing there with, with a rainbow armband on getting a yellow card yeah. you're like yeah no problem I'll do that but then when it comes down to it they did bottle it um, there was something else that I wanted to well, talk about there. I mean there's some horrendous um, kind of imagery of chanting in British soccer stadiums of really homophobic kind of slurs and that's happening now that's today now FIFA can be good and, and the British Football Association to say this kind of behaviour is not acceptable and people will be banned but actually the actions they've taken have not affected a significant change or impact on that behaviour so it still happens today so it, of course it discourages any professional footballer yeah. from coming mm. out because nobody wants to be playing football professionally with that level of abuse coming from the, the stands you know it's just not possible to do your job you know, there was Justin Fashion in, in the 70s who came out and he got horrendous abuse and ended up killing himself because he couldn't kind of stand up to the level of uh, focus of attention and what he was getting. So it's really horrendous. You know, the, the behavior of the football associations aren't as supportive as they might be in these circumstances. Mm. Do you feel like there's a lot of virtue signaling with corporations as well and they don't really show support when it's time to show support? Well, I mean, I... I remember when I came out first, we did very small gay prides in, in the early 80s. Maybe there were 20 or 30 of us kind of wandering down Grafton Street with leaflets or pink triangles or carnations handing them out to the thing. So when I see the huge numbers that are there today, I, I, have, I welcome them because I think it's, it's brilliant that there are this many people coming out into the street to declare support. And I do welcome corporate support, but I think it has to be clear support. Um, the Pride, Dublin Pride offices are looking more at, you know, how exactly is corporate um, agencies supporting Pride. So if it is just a thing of sponsorship, they're less interested in that. What they're looking at more is the uh, companies becoming champions for LGBT causes. So let's look at whether, you know, Budweiser, do they have an LGBT support group in-house in their companies? Are there, you know, positive kind of um, means to enable LGBT workers to come out without discrimination in their environment. So looking at that kind of approach in, in the jobs as opposed to just saying, you know, um, absolute support yeah. gays or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Frank, your podcast is currently releasing weekly at mm -hmm. the moment. <clears throat> yeah, um, five episodes. And we're almost there. The fourth um, was launched uh, today. And I mean, the story from episode and episode will just pull you in a million different directions. And um, that's kind of how it felt researching and, and producing it too. But, you know, from a personal point of view, it has been an incredible experience. It has been an honor and a privilege to get to know. And I do feel like I know Charles Self through those closest to him through the people he worked with, through his friends. Um, he struck me as uh, as a fun, loving man. He loved life. Um, he loved a tipple. He loved a night out. He was great fun. He had a very sharp wit. He was very opinionated, very talented, great company. He was all of those things. And in my day to day, sometimes when you're covering a trial, like a murder trial, for example, um, sometimes that kind of gets lost. And the reason it gets lost is because all a jury is concerned about is how a person was killed and who was responsible. And you don't get that three dimensional view 
of a victim. And that's the wonderful thing about Inside the Crime is that we've done that. I mean, it's a true crime podcast, but Charles Self deserves to be remembered as one of his friends put put it in the podcast. And, and he is through their stories, through their memories. And we were very live to the fact that that can re-traumatize people. It's not an easy thing to do to sit down there for hours and people like Christine Falls, you know, Bill Maher, who has been a lone voice almost over the past 40 years, just banging that drum, looking for his friend's case to be in re- uh, to be investigated, calling the guards regularly, he's constantly in touch with them to see where they're at with it, to see if there have been any developments. You know, sitting down with these people, Alan Farkerson, another person who worked with him in RTE, you are conscious of of bringing them back to a very dark chapter in their lives. Um, and you absolutely want to do the story justice. And, and again, you want to do it for a greater purpose. It's been wonderful to meet and speak to people like Bill Foley sitting here beside me because, you know, you mentioned gay icons earlier. You mentioned David Beckham and all the work that he has done previously for the community and and how he is considered a gay icon. And I think that's a term that's kind of thrown around a bit too loosely um, because it's the Bill Foley's of this world that are the true gay icons. They were the ones walking up and down the streets of our capital city when the act of homosexuality was gay. They were, you know, on the periphery of, of Irish society. Tony Walsh, another prominent gay activist who contributed to the podcast. People like David Norris, you know, who fought tooth and nail, a very long, hard legal battle where he had many defeats along the way before he eventually won and the law was decriminalized in 1993. I mean, these these are the people that I would consider to be gay icons. And Inside the Crime is so much more than a true crime podcast. Um, We do really hope that we will advance Charles' investigation in some way. Um, but if for some reason that doesn't happen, what we would like to think we have achieved is we have given people um, a three-dimensional picture of who Charles was, but we've also brought people back to a dark chapter in our lives that I don't think we should forget about. I'm a very positive person. I'm an optimistic person. I like to look forward, but I think it's important to look in your rearview mirror as well to know where you've come from before you can decide where you're going. Yeah, definitely. And I think you brought up the fact that it was going to wash in Britain during uh, the, the 1900s, particularly. Um, you know who Alan Joran is? Alan Joran cracked the Enigma code. He's like the godfather of computer science, basically. He nearly won the war for the Allies. A lot of people credit him with doing that. And he was a gay man and he got castrated. Like he's a hero of World War II and I think he was castrated in the 50s then. And like mm. if it wasn't for him, who knows what could have happened in World War II. Yeah. So like he's a hero in one sense and he's a villain in the other. And he got like a horrible demise. Yeah, so. and it's look, it's it's people's mindsets, it's prejudice and we're still not there. Like absolutely not. I mean, you know, you read about and you hear about homophobic attacks, you know, people being attacked on the streets of the city they live in, you know, where they should feel safe and where they should be able to express their love for their partner, regardless of of gender, without fear, you know, of walking down our streets hand in hand with their boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the case may be. You know, you, you should be allowed to do that. Um, you certainly, it certainly wasn't an easy thing to do back in the 1980s. And I, I think speaking to Tony Walsh during, during the podcast, he said that it wasn't actually, it wasn't actually the fear of being prosecuted under these cruel laws. That wasn't the fear. It was the outing. Because there were a lot of people in jobs like teachers, for example, you know, working for and being paid by the state who were very much in the closet. 
living double lives, living, living secret lives, many of whom had families, you know. Um, and one thing that came up during the Charles Self investigation as well was that, you know, the guards would come looking for people and they would knock on, on the door of their family home. You know, a gay man's wife might answer the door, not realise obviously that their husband is gay. He's very much in the closet and he was being outed at home or being outed in a workplace where it might jeopardise his job or future job opportunities. I think that's a fair assessment of what's going on, Bill. And, you know, we certainly heard a lot of anecdotal evidence that, that was happening on the back of the Charles Self murder investigation. I've mm. heard cases of this within the last even 20 years, like this century of like a celebrity someone might get like a, a whiff that they're gay and it's like every journalist would kill to get that. They break mm. that news to whatever rag, newspaper or magazine they can. And like imagine, I don't know, like being a mother or father picking up the newspaper or the magazine and looking, your son who you probably think is successful is being shamed then and be like, ha, we're the ones who broke this story and you're like, yeah, like what what's going on here? Yeah. Well, I mean, thankfully, we've reached a stage now where being gay or lesbian or trans or bi is nothing to be ashamed of. Thankfully, we're in a situation where most of us can live happy, out, proud lives. Um, but unfortunately, there has been a rise in, in right wing kind of mentality internationally, and it is happening in Ireland as well. I mean, we've seen the cases last uh, just earlier this year of two men being killed in in Galway because they were gay and, and, and other kind of incidents of really horrendous queer bashing episodes happening in Dublin and Cork and, and elsewhere. And it, it is emblematic of this kind of rise of homophobia. And I don't really know where it's coming from. It's It's kind of people, you know, I suppose, feeling that we've got too uppity in ourselves or something and we need to be taken down again. Um, but it but it has brought fear back into the LGBT community. We can't kind of just rest on our laurels and think, actually, job done. We still have a, a whole lot of work to do. We have to make sure that our, our spaces are safe. Um, there's legislation going through the doll at the moment in terms of hate crime to kind of reinforce the notion that this is unacceptable, both in terms of attitudes to LGBT people and, and racism and so on. Um, we, we need to try and step stem this in, in the bud, you know, that this kind of behavior is unacceptable. And also to try and educate people into it, you know, that LGBT people, LGBT people are not a threat to anybody. It's about diversity and lives and allowing people to live different but equal lives in the country we live in. Yeah. Back in 1982, did, did you ever see Ireland in 2022 making as much progress as it did? Although there is still cases of these things happening, but did you imagine you'd ever see that much progress happening? No, I think that's a simple answer. I mean, if you'd said to me back in 82 that in my lifetime we will have uh, LGBT same-sex marriage happening in Ireland, I'd have laughed. I just thought it was ridiculous, you know. Um, there, there's a play called Torch Song Trilogy, which is done by an American writer, and it's a brilliant play, um, but it talks about marriage, you know, in an American context. But even then, it's kind of a highfalutin sort of ideal somewhere in the foreground. So to us here, listening to that was kind of like, well, that's next century kind of stuff. Now, admittedly, we are the next century, but we're thinking later on in, in the century. 
So it's amazing how fast we've progressed. And it's due to, you know, there are hundreds of activists over the years and different organizations in the LGBT community that have just kind of constantly stood up and said, look, this is what we are. This is what we're doing. You know, we need equality. This is the way to to get it done. And we have succeeded in that. But as uh, Frank has alluded to we do still need to continue to work at it because we haven't arrived yet. Um, the slogan "Love is Love" is very common now because it's a it's a useful way of kind of saying everybody, no matter who you love or how you love, it's the same. But equal is equal is also important, and we also need to recognise that until everything is equal under Irish law, we're not equal, and we still need to unpick legislation that that discriminates, albeit in minor areas, but we still need to do that. Right, before we wrap it up, Frank, where can people get your podcast? Um, you can get it through the News Talk app, which is powered by Goal Out. Nice little um, plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also we're everywhere else, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, um, Spotify, Apple, Google. Um, and there's also, we have some exclusive content on the website as well. You'll find it at newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime and there's some brilliant articles there about you know Declan Flynn's murder and the fallout of the sentences that were handed down there we have sketches uh, Charles Self's friend Bill Maher who used to live in the Muse with Charles for about six months or so he very helpfully drew some sketches and they're very impressive he could have been a designer himself and um, the guys in the digital team have done some brilliant graphics on the back of those as well so that people can familiarise themselves with the layout of the muse because it's important when you're looking forensically at the investigation file there's lots of articles associated with each episode as well and definitely definitely worth um worth checking it out and again look if somebody out there knows something like it really is never too late you know if we can appeal to somebody's guilty conscience you know 40 years on or you know hopefully we've created a comfortable space where somebody out there who may have been fearful of coming forward back in 1982 for all the reasons that we've spoken about today would feel more comfortable now to come forward because you know Charles lived a wonderful life Um, he was only 32 years of age he was taken far too soon he had a great life to live but he deserves to at least now in death be able to truly rest in peace that's a nice way of finishing her up. Yeah, thanks for coming in, lads. Honestly, I appreciate it, lads. Thanks for coming in. All right, that's it. Episode 101 wrapped up. Wrapped up. Take us out, Chris. Boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. What you waiting for? Put your back in it. Just a little more. Throw your whip in it now. Fill your body up in. Walk it high and low. When you finish that. The hip knocker.